Tuesday, December 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Abby Mallon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good Christmas? It was a good Christmas. How was yours? It was very nice. You were up in Connecticut. Yep, at my parents' house. Actual snow on the ground or no? Um, a little left over, but nothing fell while I was there. Uh, this is this is one of those days where it's hard to remember that it's actually late December here yeah, in Northern 60 Virginia. Degrees, yeah, sixty degrees. Yeah, I the the long range forecast has got a little snow in it, but right now it's really not feeling at all like winter. Uh, we're gonna dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with the uh, the box office news. Maybe not a surprise that Rogue One took in another. $120 million at the box office and has now cleared the half billion mark globally. And I guess the only surprise here is that there were a bunch of new movies that opened this weekend, and particularly Sing, the animated movie, the holidays, a lot of people taking their kids to movies, that sort of thing. It, Sing did fine at the box office, it didn't, didn't do as well as Rogue One. And I, I, I wanted. This is something we had touched on recently on Motley Fool Money. And I wanted to get your thoughts on. And it's, it's the Walt Disney Company as a film studio, because the story for Disney this year has been overwhelmingly dominated, and probably rightly so, by ESPN and the loss of subscribers there, and the fact that ESPN was such the goose laying the golden eggs for so long for Disney, and I think it it. I don't want to use the word panicked, but I think you could make an argument that when you see the sell-off of Disney stock over the first 10 months of this year, you could make a pretty good argument that there were a bunch of analysts who were panicking over the ESPN portion of the business, but the studio side has just been a monster this year. First, where do movie studios... Stand in terms of the revenue that they generate for the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, so this year was 17% of revenues and about 17.2% of operating income from margin changes and things like that. Um, that's up 28% over last year as of October 1st. So, I mean, I think, I think the thing with Disney is that they're really good at building brands, and the issue with movies is that you're going to have some hits and you're going to have some flops. You know, we saw Pete's Dragon and uh, Queen of Catwa. Those didn't do so well. But like you said, the Star Wars. Um, Moana. Yeah. You, you know, the, the Jungle Book. I mean, you look at how Disney has just dominated the top 10 movies at the box office this year. It's really, it's really yeah. impressive. And the. The good thing about Disney is that they don't need everyone to be successful. They only need a couple to build those brands and have those characters and incorporate them into consumer products and parks. So while ideally it would be great if everyone was a megastar, I don't think it's necessarily the most concerning thing when a couple don't do so well. But when you look at the declining revenue from ESPN, and let's just go ahead and assume that that's <laughs> going to con- that that trend continues in 2017 because I think that's a pretty safe bet. Do the studios become more important, not just in terms of their own revenue and their operating income line, but their ability to have that nice ripple effect of selling toys, you know, boosting the consumer products, and getting more people into the theme parks? Because it seems like the studios are more important now than they have been in the past. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess as a percentage of revenue, you could always argue that they're going to get more important if one revenue segment shrinks. But I do think that's kind of a strong assumption. I mean, I think ESPN definitely has issues, and there's no doubt about that. But if anyone knows how to build a brand, it's Disney. And while obviously they've gained awareness for their consumer children's products, I think, I mean, how different are children and sports fans, really? (laughs) Wait a minute. You know, if you can somehow, I, I mean, I'm just saying, I think that they have the ability to capture the brand, not that they've already done it, but I do think that there's opportunity, and if anyone can do it, I think Disney can. I, you mentioned a couple of the movies that they produced this year that didn't do as well Pete's Dragon, Queen of Katwa. Not huge box office hits. They also weren't financial bombs. They were not. As we've seen from Disney in the past few years, they were not the Lone Ranger or John Carter or Tomorrowland, where the company has to come out and the combination of the money that they spent on producing the film and the, in some cases, a hundred, a hundred fifty million dollars worth of marketing spend that they do, where they have to come out and say, "Yeah, we're going to have to write down a hundred million dollars." And so, as a shareholder, I agree with you. They don't all need to be hit, but it does seem like those bombs, while few and far between, they they really need to take care that they that they don't have those in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, okay, if we're going to hand you a potential franchise, uh, we're going to watch some portion of the budget much more closely. Right. In the same way that Ruth Porat joined Google and immediately made her stamp as an incredibly consequential CFO. I don't know who the CFO at, at Disney Studios is, but I like to think that that hopefully someone in there is is paying a little bit more attention to the purse strings, because it does seem like that's what makes a true financial flop. It's yeah. not just, oh, this movie didn't do well at the box office. It's It didn't do, do well at the box office, and we also spent $100 million marketing this thing. Well, I think if... So, I've looked at DreamWorks before, which DreamWorks and Pixar are often considered the main rivals there. And um, if you read Glassdoor reviews, a lot of the complaints about DreamWorks is that they got too um, structured almost. So they were trying to have 10 songs, a happy song, a sad song, a happy song, a sad song, whatever it was. And then they were asking their creative directors to go back and fill in the blanks to sort of create these mega stars or whatever. So they were doing like a paint by numbers approach to animated films? From the sounds of what reviews on Glassdoor said, which take it as it is. But yeah, that's what it sounded like. Whereas Pixar, um, a lot of their reviews say that they have a totally opposite approach. So everyone is created from scratch. You have a totally creative process happening with flow and um, changes and things like that. So I think, I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily a formula, but if you look at those, I mean, obviously uh, Pixar is part of Disney now, but if you look at the box office hits for each of the two companies, I think I mean, consumer preference is hard to judge before it's out there, but I do think that the ebb and flow of Pixar seems to be working better than DreamWorks. It also seems like Disney has got... We, we talk about this more with Apple and the iTunes ecosystem and just how strong that is for Apple. It also seems like Disney has built up a pretty nice ecosystem in terms of uh, the studios themselves and how they are able to share information among technical staff and that sort of thing, where 
yes, Marvel is its own studio, Pixar is its own studio, Buena Vista is its own studio, but they're able to share information because they're all part of the same parent. They've got the television networks in ABC and ESPN where they can, you know, and they can put people on to promote them. But by the same token, Comcast has got the same thing going on with NBC and Universal. So it's uh um, it is interesting to see how they make all of those work together. Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely part of their key is having their own, um, their own content. And when you think about like Netflix or Hulu, you see them producing their own Netflix originals or Hulu originals, and just making that product more valuable for consumers. You're a Hulu person. I'm a Hulu person. You're yeah. a happy subscriber. Happy subscriber. Why? Um, I don't know. I think I feel like I like watching TV more than movies. I like to follow the storyline. I often fall asleep too, so it's easier to rewatch an episode than it is to rewatch a whole movie. That's true. If it's it's only like a twenty-four minute episode, then you can, yeah, you can move on from there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Market Foolery is our Twitter handle. From longtime listener Rick Zabrodsky in Calgary, Alberta, who writes, "The only store with lineup today at the mall was Lululemon. Guys and gals, same price online, so I went home and shopped. That's that's." Smart on a couple of fronts. That's smart of Rick to look at the line and see, you know what? If it's the same price, I can just go home and do this. Uh, but also smart of Lululemon to to do their pricing that way. This is this is one of those apparel companies that I find more interesting than most. In part because of what has happened to the stock this year. Depending on when you bought shares of Lululemon, you've either had a really great 2016 or an really ab- painful, <laughs> or a really painful 2016. At various points, the stock up 50 percent, down 50 percent. Just in terms of investor expectations, do you need a stronger stomach with this stock than other apparel retail out there? Yeah, I mean, I think Lulu is kind of interesting. I think there's a general Wall Street malaise for. Just retail in general, and I think being at a premium price point and also having the struggles with supply chain management that they've had in the past, I do think people are a little quick to jump the gun for better or for worse with them. Um, and I do think that they've definitely benefited from being a first mover advantage in this athleisure space. So the first ones to really make gym clothes acceptable to wear on the street. So I think it's also just people are sort of waiting for that tide to turn, and you're seeing competitors come in and. Um, Probably waiting for some margin pressure there, so I definitely think it's a little bit rockier of a ride for sure. Lauren Potdevin, who's the CEO, said recently that the areas of focus for 2017 and beyond for the company are growing internationally, growing their e-commerce sales, and growing the men's segment. Uh, Rick made the point, and other people have written in in the, in the past few weeks about um, the Lululemon appeal for men. Because a few weeks back, Ron Gross and I were talking about this, and we were, we we are of similar age, and just sort of scratching our heads, saying, I, "I don't know, I don't think of it that way." But have heard from a number of listeners saying, "No, no, no, this absolutely does have appeal for men, particularly younger men." I'm curious, as someone who studies this company, which of those three do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for Pat Devin and his team among growing the men's segment, growing e-commerce, and growing internationally? Yeah, I guess if I had to rank them from least to greatest challenge, I'd say least you have e-commerce. I think that's sort of an industry-wide change. Um, And the good thing about that is that they're going to benefit and learn from other companies' success and failures. So that's a little bit more carved out, so less specific to Lulu and less risky. 
Um, the second challenge or middle level tier for strategic initiatives, I'd say, is uh, the men's segment. I think the good thing about it is that um, men do wear athletic clothes. You have Nike, you have Under Armour, you have a lot of key brands there. So it's not necessarily a change in consumer behavior as much as it's sort of a change in brand perception, which I think um, I would I would guess that men are aware of Lululemon, perhaps not necessarily as a men's line, but definitely aware of it. And then, so I think it's just changing it to become a more masculine, friendly brand, which with a name like Lululemon is going to be a little challenging. And then I would, but I would definitely say their biggest challenge is going to be growing internationally. Gaining that brand awareness is expensive and it takes time. And especially where you're looking at places that they don't wear athletic clothes the way the U.S. does. It's not necessarily as um, acceptable. <laughs> so you're going to have to change consumer behavior for both men and women and ask them to pay premium for it. So Well, and that, and that last point is the one that I'm, uh, I'm the most curious to see how it plays out, because this is a premium brand. And they have resisted, so far, Going downstream, they've resisted the well. We're gonna, we're, we're really gonna discount stuff. Um, you you pay a lot for Lululemon. For sure. I mean, I don't think that's new necessarily. Not even to the athletic industry. I think you look at sneakers and people. I mean, people pay a lot for sneakers. So I mean, while they don't make sneakers, I think it's sort of a lifestyle or a look. I think it has the potential. It's just gonna be convincing people, which can be a lot easier said than done. Are, are you a Lululemon shopper at all? I am. I both gave and received Lululemon this winter. <laughs> Did you? Yep. Gift cards or? Um, no. You just, I like to pick it out. Nice. Yeah. That's nice. That's a, a nice touch. Yeah. You know. Although, <laughs> I was saying right before we taped, right before we taped, um, one of the gifts I got, which was a very pleasant surprise, was a gift card to Sweetfire Donna's, which is the awesome barbecue place right near Pool HQ. So. <laughs> so who's the real winner here? <laughs> <laughs> I like to think we're both winners. Uh, Good Christmas break, good time yeah. with the family. Very relaxing. Any any sort of particular um, anything unexpected, anything fun that you did? Yeah. Um, well, my dad is Jewish and my mom is Christian, so we do both holidays in my house a little nice. bit. Nice. So we first night of Hanukkah was Christmas Eve. Yes. Yep. So we lit the menorah in front of the Christmas tree this year. <laughs> and not too close though. No, not too close. And we had um, Thai takeout because we're only a little Jewish, not. <laughs> Full Jewish with the Chinese takeout. There you go. So that was our Christmas Eve dinner, but Christmas we had everyone over and did the whole traditional dinner and things like that. That's so. very nice. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, you just reminded me uh, we've been doing holiday songs at the end of Market Fullery, and producer Dan Boyd pointed out, you know, hey, we're in the midst of Hanukkah, so we're we're going to wrap up this week with a couple of Hanukkah tunes. Um, uh, did something with the family this year uh, that we've never done before on Christmas Day. We went down to. White House to the Ellipse, oh, nice. uh, and you've got the Christmas trees with decorations from all 50 states, which is really great to see. And yeah. it's, and and I have to say, it was much more crowded than I was expecting it to be. I just thought, oh, there will be no one out yeah. in the middle of the day. No, there were plenty of people out, and got to see decorations from all 50 states, including uh, some of the territories, Guam and Puerto Rico, and that sort of thing. And interesting because you've got the decorations on the tree, you've got a little description of where they came from, and some definitely stand out in terms <laughs> in terms of the uh, the decorations themselves. 
the description from Montana was amazing because it came from a school. The, the decorations were made at a school in Montana, which is a two-room schoolhouse. It was an elementary school with just two rooms. I just thought, that's got to be one small town, but it's yeah. a very nice decoration. <laughs> what I would expect from Montana. <laughs> Absolutely. And some of the... Arizona. Uh, amazing decorations from Arizona. Uh, your home state of Connecticut, my home state of Maine. Yeah, they were fine. Yeah. Sort of nondescript, but Arizona, big winner. Vermont looked really good. There were a couple other states that did really well, but Arizona, the clear winner there. Cool. Abby Mallon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.